This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Yeah, the City Hall stuff is happening. Olivia Chow will announce a deputy mayor or more than one deputy mayor today. She kind of picks her inner circle. That is going to be interesting. I think it's been uh, flattened a little bit in terms of the news cycle by what we're going to do today. It's our first show after the Auditor General's Greenbelt report came down around 11 o'clock yesterday. I was listening to Alex's show driving home as I often, I was supposed to say always, often do. I often do. I almost always do. Um, Unless I'm stopping to get gas, you know, inflated uh, prices of gas, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, yeah, we played you some of Isaac Cowan being on with her before the 6 o'clock news. And for City Hall, you're going to get pushed out of the news cycle a little bit. But this is a chance to see if Olivia Chow is going to pick people that all align with her or whether she's going to mix it up. There was a lot of talk, I think, that John Tory, to his credit, would make a city council that was reflective of the voters and have new people with older people, have veterans with rookies, if you were if you will, on the board of health was Joe Cressy. Now, Joe, I don't think Joe Cressy and John Tory always aligned on political decisions. I would bet you that they didn't. Um, but that was an important job, obviously, for and it became a very important job as of 2020 to see who was on um, who was on the city's uh, board of health uh, housing. John Tory was aligned with Brad Bradford. I don't think they'd agree on every single thing politically. I'm not sure anyone ever should with people that they work with. If there's 20 things, you got to find one or two that you're like, ah, let's split the difference here. You, you take that fork in the road. I'll take this one. But I think it's going to be interesting to see where um, this lands. And that will start getting announced, determined around 930 this morning as Olivia Chow picks her, her deputy mayor uh, and decides who her inner circle will be. But the green belt takes a lot of priority here and fair comment. Fair comment to defend the Ford government on a lot of fronts, on a lot of fronts. This seems to be an electorate that generally you can't tell what the last election result was all about, because I think for the most part, it's been a electorate in Ontario that has been. How would would I put it? Harsh conservatives, very hard C conservatives kind of look at Doug Ford and they kind of know that he doesn't align with them. He's not going to put big culture issues on the table. I think he wants what he wants. I think he's more a populist and populist gets utilized as a bad word, but populist means in essence, trying to please everybody. Now I'm not of the notion that if you try and please everybody, you'll please no one. Doug Ford's kind of defeated that concept. He defeated it pretty badly in the last election with his party going from 67 seats to 83. And I've heard all the arguments. Um, Everything came at the right time. People were starting to feel less um, urgent about the pandemic. When Doug Ford was getting elected, Greg, he couldn't have gotten elected with the same majority and the same increase in seats back in 2021. I would agree with that. A lot of people's blood was boiling. We're boiling at Doug Ford, especially people, I think, that lean more right than left. He closed up the outdoors. He didn't let your kids play sports. He didn't even push the teachers to the front of the line to potentially keep schools open. And again, we've gone through those issues uh, ad nauseum to some extent. I think there were teachers and people within the unions of the teachers that wanted Doug Ford to eat a big poop sandwich with how COVID was going to go last spring into the election. And it turns out it didn't happen. And it turns out many people who couldn't for the life of themselves decide to vote for Doug Ford, decided to vote for Doug Ford because they deemed he'll get my life back a lot quicker than if I vote for the other parties. Well, to me, anyway, that era is over and now it's going to be an era about politics and accountability. And yesterday was not just a bad day for Doug Ford, not just a bad day for the housing minister, Steve Clark. I think it was a bad day for the concept of them getting another majority government. They have 80, they've, they're down to 81 seats now. They really wanted Scarborough Guildwood a couple weeks ago. Didn't win that by-election. Didn't keep uh, Kanata Carlton up in Ottawa, which was Marilee Fullerton's riding. Uh, they didn't. And I would make the case, anytime it, this is out there, you just need to say enough things. 
The Ford government, morally bankrupt. The Ford government, liars. They promised not to touch the green belt. And that's not me saying that. That's out there in the airspace. That's out there in the airspace. They're not here for the people. They're here for the rich people. They're not here for you, the common citizen. They're here to fatten other people's pockets. And if a couple of those pockets spill out and you pick up the stuff off the floor, they're good with that also. Opening the green belt for development has its merits. There's no question about it. There's no question about it. And yet developers will always make money when land gets open. But to Bonnie Lissick's point, the Auditor General, this was not an open process. This was not done with any sort of public consultation. And what, where's that accusation happening right now? Ontario Place. Different issue, different economics, different back and forth and debate about what we should do with it. But the concept seems to be the same. Let's ram it through. We can do it. We don't need to ask questions. And let's go chop chop before anybody notices. That sort of feels like what the green. There was no news conference where, hey, here's us opening the green belt. And here's why. Here's Bonnie Lissick from yesterday. We have concern around what we saw. And, and hence, I think you'll see the terminology that we've used throughout the report is this is a flawed process. This was a biased process. We saw what we think is preferential treatment. Um, there's a lot. There's answers still to be obtained in a few areas. So I, I do believe we are saying this was not. I, we weren't. We aren't even referring to it as a process in our report. We're calling it an exercise. Yeah, you're calling it an exercise. By the way, the chief of staff for the housing minister left a dinner, uh, and this is back in the fall of 2022, with envelopes. Now those envelopes didn't have tens um, and twenties in them. Or crisp, fresh Canadian bills with people like John A. McDonald, and I don't think they would involve Wilfrid Laurier. That's too low a denomination. But they didn't involve money, but they involved recommendations for plots of land for the Greenbelt. When, by the way, when you leave a dinner with envelopes that you didn't usually come with, um, and and you're in government and you're going to make decisions on what's in the con, what's what's contained within those envelopes. Not great. Not great if somebody sees you with those envelopes. That's, that's not nobody prints out MapQuest directions to get home anymore from that particular fundraising dinner or that real estate dinner. This is the kind of thing that undermines confidence in the political process. Here's Doug Ford um, explaining, explaining his side of the story for the time being. We were moving fast. We couldn't have had a better process. We could have had a better process. As Premier, the buck stops with me. And I take full responsibility for the need for better process. Okay. I mean, I'd be nervous with, with not being able to read the teleprompter also. I, I, I would. There's a, a lot of heat going on there. But this is, a go, this is going to linger. This is going to be dug into. And the opposition parties smell some fresh blood here. And they're coming after it. And they're going hard after it. So we'll see. We'll see. It may not make a difference. More than enough times, the federal liberal party has been on the hooks. They're good. They're in trouble here. This is the one. There's the smoking gun. Pfft, doesn't change election results. Didn't in 2019. It sure didn't in 2021. Will this? This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We usually have him on on Mondays, but uh, I think uh, it's timely enough. And he's been quite critical of that lack of transparency, that lack of oversight. He's Ontario Liberal leader candidate Nate Erskine-Smith. Thanks for getting up early for us. Obviously, it's uh, an important thing to talk about here. A very important thing to talk about. And and yet... We didn't receive any important answers at Ford's press conference yesterday. He kept coming back to the need to build housing. And the housing task force and the Auditor General laid bare that lie, which this isn't about housing at all. We can build housing without building on a green belt. So let's talk about what the green belt development is really about. So is it about the land or is it about the process or is it a combination? Do you sort of weigh it in a it's 70 this 30 that I mean, when I talk to people and I'm sure when you talk to potential provincial voters, they are saying it's it's both things bother them. But is it more one than the other, Nate? It is more one than the other. There's no question about it. Many people care about environmental protection 
and about nature protection and preserving our green spaces. But the most important value in politics is integrity. And there is no integrity to this, and there is no, there is no reason to trust in this government when we've seen how they've conducted themselves. And, and let's be clear about what is at stake here. You've got a situation where a small number of developers who are friendly to the Ford government received preferential treatment through a process that was clearly rigged in many ways by high-level staff. Obviously, that staff, that she was staff of the housing minister, was reporting back up the ladder to the minister and the premier. That's how this works. And they stand to gain a collective $8.3 billion increase to the value of their properties. It's, it's astounding. What should the relationship be between a premier and developers? I mean, they can't they can't be your enemy. To me, it's a little bit like landlords and tenants. When we look at all the controversy, all the issues, the pandemic, COVID certainly exacerbated that. Anybody who's um, an arbitrator needs to hear from both sides. You've got a pretty strong legal background. There has to be a relationship with developers and um, a level of government contracted, obligated and pledging to build housing. But where should it stop and where should it begin? There has to be a working relationship with developers to build the market supply we need. There's no question about it. And, and to make sure that we where we're using public lands, public dollars, that we're putting out open bidding processes that are competitive, transparent, and fair to make sure that we build the non-market housing we need. There's no question there's got to be a strong working relationship. But what there shouldn't be is a cozy, behind-the-scenes, backroom relationship. And, and again, let's, let's talk about some of the specific facts here. You've got a situation where the government, intent on helping these small number of specific developers who are friends, they established a team that was restricted to a three-week time limit and prohibited from speaking to anyone about their work. And so there were 630, 630 removal requests since 20, 2005 for the Greenbelt. But the Greenbelt team set up by Ford's government only looked at 22 sites, 21 of which were provided directly by the chief of staff. It is incomprehensible. Nate Erskine Smith, our guest on Toronto Today, Ontario Liberal Leadership Candidate. Um, the other thing is is farmland. Premier Ford mentioned um, grocery store prices yesterday. Inflation is obviously something that people ha- have looked as a sitting MP at your federal government and said, can you do this? Can you do that? But you've also spent some time recently um, in rural Ontario. So you know how farmers feel and you know how people who live on dirt roads, who don't have great access for transit, you know how they feel. Um, do they look at, at this situation any differently and say, look, we don't need to touch farmland. If anything, we need to preserve as we need to grow as much of our own food as possible and we can't be paving over it. So there are a couple of things to say about the relationship as between this particular conservative government and rural Ontario, because there's a real important value in rural Ontario. My wife's family, we've been together for almost 20 years now, and my wife grew up in Kamlaki in Lambton County. And my father-in-law is still on the farm there. It's been the farm, been the family since 1834. And honesty and integrity is so important to their value system. And there is no honesty and integrity in the way this government goes about its business. The second thing to say is they are taking their support for granted in rural Ontario when they go and build on prime agricultural land and they dismiss the concerns of farmers everywhere. I met with the Ontario Federation of Agriculture in Watford on Sunday, and their top concern is losing 319 acres of prime agricultural farmland every single day. And what do we see this government do? They continue to push and build on prime agricultural land. And to bring this back to the Greenbelt, because it's important, they initially had assessment criteria for site removal, and that was that the lands could not be designated specialty crop areas or be part of the Greenbelt's natural heritage system. 13 of the 15 sites that they ultimately moved to the Greenbelt, they were designated that way. So what do they do? They just changed the criteria. They continue to rig the process, hurting our farmland here in Ontario and helping their friends. It's a tricky task, though, isn't it? Because we talk about rural voters and rural Ontario has certainly voted heavily conservative, especially in the last couple elections. So either I mean, why does anybody, you know, go and vote for anybody? Either they really like that candidate 
or they really, really don't like the other options. You mentioned Sar- Sarnia Lampton, the liberal candidate last time out, got less than 5% of the vote. This is clearly something that you, if your leader, uh, need to change, need to alter. You need to connect with these people. There's no question about it. And, it, and it's partly showing up. It's certainly listening to concerns, and then it's responding to those concerns. And, I mean, that's Saturday I was in Strathroy, Sunday in Watford in Wyoming, uh, Monday, we spent the day in Sarnia, and you've got to rebuild an active presence and relationships on the ground in all of these communities and, and, and serve these communities. And it is about municipal infrastructure and smaller communities. It's about food security, integrated infrastructure, and it's about listening and then acting on concerns and making sure that there's an ongoing relationship. And what we ought not to see is a government that is so focused on helping a small number of friends that they disregard the top concern of the agricultural community. It's probably not going to happen, but if the housing minister resigned today, is that an appropriate level of accountability for the Ford government? It is the beginning of an appropriate level of accountability. That is the minimum that we should expect. We have a a minister who has overseen a rigged process that gave preferential treatment to prominent developers to the tune of billions of dollars. If that doesn't warrant a resignation, I don't know what does. At the same time, it's not enough. We do need to see a further investigation. I mean, conflict of interest goes without saying, it is certain, but criminal fraud deserves investigation. And, and let's be clear about the, the broader picture for this government. We have a premier who was elected on the mantra of for the people, and he's shown that he and his government are only in it for their friends. So we need change of the ballot box in the end. You can go to uh, meetnate.ca, find out more about Nate Erskine Smith's candidacy to become the Ontario Liberal leader. I appreciate your insight on this important issue today, Nate. Thanks very much. Thanks, Greg. All right. There's uh, Nate Erskine Smith. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We want to welcome on the uh, leader of the Ontario New Democrats, the opposition party. She is Marit Stiles, and she's back on Toronto Today. Thanks for making the time. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, when you hear the report yesterday and you saw uh, and had probably had some uh, some spidey sense as to what was coming, uh, Mark, wh- what do you look and, and say about it? Well, you know, honestly, it's uh, it's explosive, right? I, I have to say I haven't read anything quite like this in a long time. Um, there was the, the liberal gas plant, you know, what Ford himself called the billion dollar boondoggle, but uh, this this one is uh, one for the ages. It is astonishing. The uh, government, I think, I've used words like corrupt, and I don't use those words lightly. Mm-hmm. I think it uh, it's really damning for the government, and uh, and I was also really disappointed in the premier's response yesterday. I think he, uh, I think to me that told us everything we need to know about you know where responsibility lies and who who they're trying to protect. I think there should be honest conversations about development, but what seems to be so lacking here mm. is transparency, oversight, any form of meaningful consultation. You're witnessing this kind of criticism right now with Ontario Place, with the talk about the Ontario Science Center. So that's a problem. Like that, that looks more like um, a feature than a bug. It looks more like a pattern than a one-off. If we lump a bu- that was my reaction and a lot of people's reactions yesterday yeah. to say we have to talk about building. And if you disagree, fine. But there's just been no oversight or meaningful consultation with the public or even experts on this front. That's right. And the process here, and the auditor general was really explicit about it. That the process is was rigged. And what the premier said yesterday, he's not going to do anything to change that. I mean, going forward, he says, oh, there'll be more transparency and he'll move on some of these things. But that doesn't change what already happened. And he is not reversing course. And I want to be really clear. He gets out there and he's going to tell everybody and they're spending you know, millions of dollars, I'm sure, on those expensive ads saying this is all about housing. This is not about housing. We do, and nobody disagrees. I, I certainly don't disagree don't disagree, uh, that we have to build 1.5 million homes. Yes. Uh, but report after report, including the premier's own housing task force, including the auditor general now say that we don't need to use the greenbelt land. So why is he proceeding with that? Why? I mean, a very few small number of insiders are going to make at least 8.3 
billion dollars off these land swaps. Um, there's clearly insider knowledge. Envelopes were exchanged. USB keys were shared. It, the process was rigged. These guys won the lottery, and the lottery was rigged. And it isn't about building housing. In fact, if anything, it's going in the wrong direction because it's going to build this kind of luxury sprawl. It's going to cost us all more in the end to service those areas. When municipalities, we can rezone, repurpose in existing boundaries and make better housing faster. This government's going in the wrong direction. And I was really appalled that they didn't um, reverse course, which is one of the things the Auditor General and myself asked for. Mart Stiles joining us, NDP leader for the province of Ontario on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. For all we learned yesterday, all the public learned, all the politicians learned, what's the one thing you still want an answer to that you didn't get yesterday? Uh, Well, I I think what we need is um, the the Premier and the Minister of Housing uh, to take real responsibility. Uh, I heard the Premier say the buck stops with him, um, but the billions are still flowing. So to me, he doesn't get it. I want them to recall the legislature and reverse course. I want them, I want the Minister of Housing to resign. If, if he didn't know, which I think honestly defies belief, it's totally implausible, um, but if he didn't know what his chief of staff was doing, then uh, he should have known and he should resign 100%. And the fact that the Premier didn't make him resign, to me, says that um, he's protecting himself. So... I would, I look, the integrity commissioner is conducting two other investigations that I've asked for, um, and we'll see what he comes up with, but he has a very narrow mandate. The OPP uh, racketeering squad said they are considering an investigation. I, what's I your level of faith there? Right what's your level of faith there with the OPP? There's a lot of people critical of the relationship between the province and the Ontario Provincial Police. Understandably so. There, there, there is more a relationship than there is with other law enforcement bureaus. Do you have any confidence the OPP would, would have a credible investigation going? Well, I, I'll give them time now to consider things in light of this investigation, um, because clearly uh, there are issues here, a process, like the laws were changed, the process was absolutely rigged to ensure that a few uh, insiders in the Conservative Party, uh, donors, got uh, land swap deals that are going to make them billions of dollars. I don't know what is racketeering if not that. And, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, this government should work for you as Ontarians, right? And not their insider friends. And that is what happened here. And so to me, um, I hope the OPP investigates. If not, I'm certainly uh, open to exploring with other levels of law enforcement. But I, I really hope that all of those conservative MPPs are feeling the heat from their constituents today are ashamed at what their government has done and and push this premier to do the right thing. We had Ontario Liberal leader candidate Nate Erskine-Smith on the show, and I asked him this. I, I think, you know, you'd agree he's he's someone who's carried himself with integrity. I'm sure he'd say the same about you. You may be rivals very soon. But at the same time, I asked him, I said, what should a relationship be between the premier a premier and 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 real estate developers. There has to be some relationship. You're going to award contracts to build. There's an onus, a responsibility on the province to build. What's the balance there? Like like what what if Premier Mart Styles was? Well, you've got buddies. Well, you're giving preferential treatment. Like that accusation can be there. What's the balance that should be there? I think the balance is that you need a process that is is you know handled by the public service without um, political meddling. And what you saw here is the worst-case scenario, right? It's uh, Because absolutely we have to work with developers. I mean, the Premier and I may disagree about how we should proceed and the tools we should use. I, I think that government should get back into the business of actually building affordable housing as well as developers. Um, but but you know, at the end of the day, Ontarians should be able to trust that their government isn't corrupt. And I don't use that term lightly. This smacks of corruption. We've known it smelled bad. The Auditor General's report makes it very clear uh, what took place, at least. 
And we should very, you know, at least expect that the premier doesn't have, you know, developers whispering in his ear at private functions or passing mm-hmm. brown envelopes to uh, political staff. It's unacceptable. And he is the premier of this province. He has the responsibility for this. Before you go, you were the education critic of the NDP. It's my first opportunity to ask you about what we're um, seeing and, and hearing about what happened to Richard Bilkstow, what's happening with uh, DEI training in the TDSB. Um, there's a pending lawsuit. There's obviously uh, a terrible tragedy with a suicide involved. Um, I'm a big advocate for DEI training, but I also want to make sure that it gets done right. And it's possible the WSIB certainly thought so that this was an occasion in which it wasn't. Where do you stand on this? I'm really, uh, I, uh, first of all, I think that um, the, a lot of the organizations that are doing this training are doing an excellent job. In, and, and I would say, including um, the person who was in, in, you know, the company that was involved in this situation has an excellent reputation, actually. So I'm, I'm concerned about the WSIB's uh, findings. I don't, they don't seem to be in, in um, keeping with what uh, other assessments have been of their performance. It's been quite good. And I, I think that what's really, what I'm really concerned about is that really important work that has to happen, has to happen. It's going to stop. Um, because of all of this. And I'm worried that the government is going to use this as an excuse. Uh, and we don't need that. We need to keep doing this really important work. Um, I've been in lots of these training sessions, and I can tell you they've been extremely important, respectful. They've caused me to, to question myself often. And that's tough, right? It's tough to, to question those things. But it's also really important. And, you know, it's obviously a terrible tragedy what happened to this person. Uh, but I am really worried about the repercussions, um, and I'm hoping that the government doesn't use this as an excuse to, you know, blow up all this important work that um, school boards are doing. I, I agree with that. You know, at the end of the day, it's about our kids, right? It's about kids feeling safe. I, I, I agree with that. I, I think there could be negative repercussions, and I think some have seized on the opportunity to say, let's end it, let's get it out. But I, I've listened to the audio of it, and, and I, I think I, it's a shame there wasn't somebody in the room to dial the temperature down, to say, let's take five or th- that's not what I heard. And and whether that was a failure on the, the visiting party's fault, a failure of TDSB administrators, the WSIB doesn't get challenged too often. But y- y- it sounds like you're taking issue with their with their findings. I, you know, um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, they're there. I from what I've heard and the people I've talked to in the assessments before, I, I'm having a hard time imagining that it. it have been taken so badly, but you know these are difficult conversations, yeah. um, and I, I I think people like I said I mean I've been in them I've had that kind of um, I've had interactions I I feel like it's on us though to to be grown ups and to accept that sometimes we have to challenge ourselves um, and that we're doing it so that our kids and not just our kids but everybody's kids can can succeed mm. and uh, and the system can't afford to take a step backward yeah. on this. Yeah. Um, I got to leave it there, but I appreciate you coming on this morning and hopefully we'll have another chat before uh, school kicks in. I appreciate the time. Thank Mart- you so much. Thank you. Mart Stiles joining us, uh, Ontario NDP leader. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Sabrina Nanji, uh, of course, with QP Observer joins us now. I know you were so busy yesterday, but you had been hearing from your insiders even early last week, Sabrina, that this was going to be a notably uh, bad report, a harsh report. If you'd asked me yesterday morning, I would have said, ah, seven out of 10 on the extreme scale. Uh, this was a high nine. This was the biggest indictment yet, if you will, of the Ford government um, when it comes to doing something below the belt, below the board. Yeah, you're right, Greg. I mean, this was something that is the closest thing to a smoking gun that we've got so far about, you know, forward friendly developers having direct influence over this Greenbelt land swap. I mean, the Auditor General said she couldn't even call it a process. It was more of a political exercise because of how it went down. And I do think, you know, good on the Premier for uh, admitting that the process was flawed, but he's plowing ahead anyway. I mean, he, he may have agreed to 14 of the 15 recommendations that the AG made, but the most important one, you know, rethinking these lands being opened up, which aren't even really necessary as the AG underscored, mm-hmm. as the government already knew, um, to, you know, hit those those ambitious housing targets that I think everyone, you know, wants to see more housing built. But no one's going anywhere. I think it's 
completely possible that Housing Minister Steve Clark, who bore the brunt of this during yesterday's press conference, um, he, he's sticking around for now. He, he might spend some time in the penalty box. I don't think he's going anywhere um, amid these rumors of a summer cabinet shuffle just yet. Uh, his chief of staff, who also shouldered a lot of the blame uh, in, in the AG's report, is sticking around for now. Uh, but you're right, you know, this is something that for months, opposition critics and reporters who have been digging into this are saying something smells fishy here. The AG's report has shed light on, you know, uh, th things that don't don't seem up to code, certainly not how, you know, governments typically go about their decision making uh, for, for something as big as opening up previously protected lands. But it's not over yet. You know, the ethics commissioner is still digging into this. The OPP has been sniffing around. They haven't launched any formal investigations yet. But as Bonnie Lissick said yesterday, she did share her findings with police. And so we'll, we'll see where they decide to take it. But certainly, I think this is the closest thing to, um, you know, a major scandal that the Ford government has had. And it's not over yet. Yeah. So, so much of this is the process. The concept is private developers were able to dictate to the government what parts of the green belt be removed and plain and simple look private developers are going to be able to get rich if they win contract bids they're going to be able to build homes and uh, and they will benefit and then the housing actually exists but the process got reversed here sabrina the, like the government is supposed to say we will open up pieces of the green belt now there's an open and transparent bidding process and it just seems patently obvious that, that it was the opposite yeah, I mean, the allegations that we had been hearing for months was that developers were tipped off that the Greenbelt lands were going to be opened up. Uh, and it turns out that, you know, I mean, even worse, uh, it, the, the developers were the ones who were sort of having a, a heavy hand in this process and getting these lands opened up. I mean, um, this this has raised a bunch of questions for the government, I think even more questions of, you know, uh, who had access and why that access was given. And I think more importantly and damaging for the premier and his cabinet is, is who's in charge here. I mean, for them to say that, you know, they really didn't have knowledge of this process, uh, you know, it being biased and flawed, even though they've admitted it and said the ends justify the means, which I don't know if that's really going to fly with the public when it comes down to it. But for them to say that they weren't really aware of, of the goings on and to sort of, you know, pass the buck over to a chief of staff, I think, um, you know, it, it sort of flies in the face of of everything the Ford government has been talking about here, it raises questions of who's really in charge. And I, I think, you know, it's not going to go away anytime soon for them. We had the opposition critics, NDP leader, Mark Stiles, calling this flat out corruption, throwing around a very big word here. Uh, but it seems like it, they're plowing ahead and, and things are going to be steady as she goes for now until I think, you know, as we've seen with the Ford government, them willing to back down on controversial uh, policies that they've had in the face of, of, you know, public scrutiny and public backlash. Mm -hmm. I think that's really the only thing that, that could change the the course right now. Sabrina and Angie joining us from QP Observer on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. I heard from one NDP person yesterday. I know you have your sources also. And to be honest, their fear was is that the government would kind of throw itself to the mercy of the public and be very reticent, be very apologetic, be very like own what they did in essence, and even consider walking back what they were going to do with the green belt. And you, you and I have had several conversations about how somehow, some way the Ford government has been pretty good since 2018. And especially during the pandemic, Oh, the public doesn't like that. Well, we won't do it then. We won't do something as insane as closing playgrounds down. Oh, you don't like the notwithstanding clause. If you're QP, we'll walk it back if you do this. Like, they have been good at that, and they they do that. And it does make people, voting for them or not, say, this has some political merit here. They didn't do that yesterday, but the weird thing was, I think there were people in the opposition parties worried that they would actually take more accountability because that makes them look more accountable. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, they didn't go as far as opposition critics wanted them to. But I do think that it was major for the Ford government to sort of ad admit some uh, mistakes happened here. I mean, the fact that they 
were holding a press conference just an hour, uh, roughly an hour after Bonnie Lissick's presser ended, I mean, just goes to show you that they were in damage control mode right away. Yes. I mean, rather than sort of wait a few days, see how the report plays out, which, you know, they've done in the past. I, I still think it's possible that Steve Clark might, uh, you know, potentially might get shuffled out, but I, I'm not sure that's really going to happen. Behind closed doors, I've been hearing that Doug Ford has been telling his caucus members, you know, we've got to rally the troops. We've got to rally behind Clark. Uh, the chief of staff, I think maybe, you know, obviously a non-elected official who had a heavy hand in this whole saga. Um, that might have been an easy scapegoat, if I could put it that way, for the Ford government to just e either, you know, fire him or to, you know, ship him off to another maybe more low profile ministry. But they're digging in their heels here. And I do think there was some culpability. But again, sort of the way yeah. they've defense here it raises questions about who's in charge because it, it's not something you know believable that they didn't know this was happening up until you know it was the cabinet sign-off day but even if that is the case it raises questions about who's who's in charge here and i think that could even be more damaging to the ford government i only got 45 seconds but i would wager to you that the ontario liberal leadership race which i think we we made the case before it might come down just to two people nate erskine smith and bonnie crombie They've had differing opinions about protecting the green belt. There's there's that w crack of the window open for Bonnie Crombie. And that's one thing she hasn't walked back yet is the idea of trading it for white belt property. Nate said, I'm not touching it no matter what. That could make the difference. Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, people can be uh, amenable to opening up parts of the Greenbelt. I think what is the most damaging in, in this drama is is the process or, you know, lack thereof of yeah. how it all went down. But I don't think that Bonnie Crombie is necessarily going to get, you know, a, a ton of backlash, even though Nate has been you know, hitting her hard on this point about mm -hmm. white belt potentially being opened up. I do think that, you know, while Ontario has plenty of land that's available for housing, we don't necessarily need to open up the green belt lands. I do think that everyone is on board with getting more housing built. And so even yeah. for the Ford government, I'm not sure how damaging this is really going to be to them in the long run. Hey, you should subscribe to QP Observer. Follow them on Twitter at the QP Observer. Sabrina Nanji, great stuff. Very awesome uh, uh, inside stuff over the last week and a half or so. And always, thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me. All right, there's Sabrina Nanji. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Robbie Robertson, uh, the music world, lost him yesterday. He wasn't as active as uh, many that we do lose, but he was 80 years old. We're going to get to... Um, uh, his legacy for sure. Uh, talk about the Taylor Swift uh, ticket madness uh, as well. Uh, and we bring in for all of that, uh, someone we love uh, weighing, uh, uh, we love when he weighs in, a journal of musical things.com is his website. He is Alan Cross. It's great to have you on. You know, we're going to have losses like this, but in a year where a spring where we lost Gordon Lightfoot to lose Robbie Robertson in the summer, Alan, those are, those are two maybe of the 10 or 12 most significant Canadian singer songwriters we've ever had. I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would call the band probably the most important group to ever come out of Canada. Uh, Robbie Robertson was their chief songwriter. He was their musical director. He was their leader. He made, you know, 99% of the decisions for the band. He was the storyteller. Uh, he was the guy that became fascinated by, you know, the American West, the American South, um, the the culture of, of the Civil War, all that sort of stuff, and honed the band's sound and, and direction. The band kind of hung in after. I mean, this does happen. A key member of a band can leave and you can still, you know, like Journey can still sell out 20,000 seats and Pink Floyd off can sell out 50,000 seats for uh, for decades. Um, the band didn't quite have the same level of success, but they cobbled it together with the remaining four members and, and, and rolled for quite a career after Robbie left, didn't they? Well, they did, um, but it was never the same. You yeah. have to have Robbie in that band, you know, his guitar playing, his presence, his direction. Um, the, the band went through a period of time in the early 70s where there was a lot of squabbling. There was problems with drugs and addictions and, and alcohol. And it was it was Robbie that made the, the call to bring the band to an end with the last Waltz concert film in 1976. So, yeah, the, the band can, did go on, but it's, it's not the band without Robbie. Alan Cross is our guest on Toronto Today. I loved, like I mean loved, his solo album in 87. And sometimes like Johnny Mars done that with the Smiths. It's like, oh, what took so long for a solo career to really get going? But I, I don't know. He put two albums out between then and 91. I know he put a couple more out. 
it just didn't seem like it was the biggest thing for him, Alan, to get back on the treadmill and tour album, tour album. I love those two albums, and they were successful, so it's not like he flopped. It just didn't seem like it was a priority. Is that a fair comment? It's a very fair comment. He uh, was doing other things, um, Mm -hmm. most notably writing music with Martin Scorsese. He worked on 14 different film projects with Scorsese, starting with, I guess, The Last Walls in 76. But, he, you know, um, Raging Bull, Casino, mm-hmm. Gangs of New York, uh, Wolf of Wall Street. There's a, a new Scorsese film coming out later called Flowers of the Killer Moon. Um, that was Robbie Robertson's last project. And, you know, he was he was busy. He was busy doing things. He wrote a couple of books. He had participated in a bunch of documentaries. Yeah. Um, and he was very, you know, secure about who he was, what he did, and, and uh, what he needed to do. Alan Cross, our guest on Toronto today. All right. Um, the Taylor phenomenon. I had somebody from Live Nation tell me that 1.5 million people sign up as uh, as the uh, phrase goes, verified fans on the first day. He figures it's more like 4 million. And uh, even if we estimate, Alan, 270,000 tickets are up for grabs for four shows Four, let's say 4 million people want those tickets and you get multiple tickets. It's a long shot. It's one in 20. It's one in 25, maybe at best. Um, I've never quite seen um, a fury like it, even in the wristband days, even in the lineup and camp overnight days of the 70s and 80s. Have you? I'm trying to remember. You know, we we saw this sort of excitement back in 1972 with the Rolling Stones and with uh, Led Zeppelin. We saw this with U2 87 with the Joshua mm-hmm. Tree and Zoo TV in 91. We saw it with Madonna in the 1990s. So every once in a while, you have an artist that approaches what the, or enters what they, we call the imperial phase, which is when absolutely everything goes right for them in their career. And Taylor Swift has been in an imperial phase for, for quite some time. Um, and yeah, the, the amount of demand is is staggering, but... Back in those old days, remember, you were only selling tickets to people in the uh, local geographic area. In the age of the internet, people are from all over the world are trying to buy those 270,000 or I guess ultimately 360,000 tickets. So it's not just mm-hmm. people in, in, in your community that, are, that you're competing against. You're competing with the rest of the planet. Plus, you have the new secondary market that we did not have, uh, people who are have connections within the ticket buying world. You have uh, credit cards that allow you to get to the front of the line. Um, you have uh, people who have these weirdo little connections that allow them to find tickets that aren't available to the general public. Uh, and you have software, um, ticket buying software bots. So the the amount of competition for you to get those two tickets is absolutely it's it, it's it's exponentially greater than it used to be back in the old days. Well, I think you hit on it. I I would come up from London to a show in Toronto, and you'd see the same ticket scalpers, whether it was a, whether it was outside of Maple Leaf Gardens or whether it was outside of RPM, and you'd see them, and they were there, but they were the ones that either lined up themselves or paid people to line up. You and I could log on today and buy tickets for a Los Angeles show or a show in Spain. And I worry that now that it's just an ex it's seen as a commodity. It's seen as a business venture as opposed to I'm going to get a wristband or I'm lining up at Sam the Record Man because it's a band I really like. And that just makes it harder for the real fans to go now. Well, you know what? What define real fan? Uh, <laughs> the, the, the point is that there are lots of real fans from all over the planet that will do whatever they need to do to see some of these shows. And, you know, a lot of people are going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. And you know what, what? What can you do? It's not Ticketmaster's fault. It's not Taylor Swift's fault. It's not the Rogers Center's fault. It's the fact that you are competing against five or ten million other people to get three hundred and sixty thousand seats. It just doesn't work. Yeah, and and I don't know the ideal system. I was sort of trumpeting what we had in the mid nineties with the wristbands, and I almost thought, Alan, that that's the most fair and equitable system. That then people aren't camped out overnight. There aren't you know. You're garbage strewn sidewalks when people are getting there at three in the morning. Um, but it felt like that. And, and you were still kind of with your community when you went and lined up. It's a weird it, it's weird that it's just all done so distantly now. It, it is. But you think back to those days, you know, what if you lived outside the, uh, the uh, mm-hmm. city where you needed to buy tickets? What if you were in a wheelchair? What if you were a, a single parent? What if you had to work? You know, it. it there, there were lots of inequities in the wristband system as well. And they could be scammed and corrupted. And they were. So if we were, if we could still use wristbands, well, we actually are. These these codes yeah. are the equivalent. They're, they're, on, they're, they're the online equivalent of, of the old paper wristbands. 
Um, you have to meter these tickets somehow. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have uh, yet another um, server catastrophe where people aren't going to be able to get uh, anything and everything's going to crash um, like it did at the beginning yeah. of this uh, of this tour. So, you know, Ticketmaster has learned how to how to meter things like, you uh, you know, we're only we've got six shows, two shows. Shows are going on sale in, you know, their own little chunks. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see, you know, by the time all this clears up tomorrow night, um, we'll have a good idea of how successful this particular system was. But listen. Okay. There's no question people are going to be angry and crying. No, I didn't get my <laughs> tickets. Well, guess what? Nobody, nobody deserves to get tickets. These are, it's a, it's a lottery. It's, it's something that you have to compete for. I'm afraid. Yeah. People don't make three minute uh, Instagram videos when they don't win lotto 649 and, 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 and you got a slightly better chance to get Taylor Swift, t- but not much, not much given the demand that's out there. Not much. You can uh, find him at a journal of musical things. He's the awesome Alan Cross. Thanks for this, Alan. I appreciate it. You're welcome. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Olivia Chow is going to name, in essence, I mean, if it were a provincial or federal uh, post, it's basically a cabinet, but it's an inner circle. Some appointments are going to mean something and some are sort of ceremonial, but um, it's an interesting list. And we'll go through it right now with Ed Keenan from the Toronto Star. It's great to have you on, Ed. How are you? I'm doing great, Greg. How you doing? Yeah, really good. I'll I'll tell you, it's um I found a comment um that Anthony Peruzza gave Ben Spur interesting, and he talked about sort of that left the left right factions of the current city council, um, all of which was elected last fall um, with John Tory being mayor. But Peruzza said, I think you'll see a council that leans to the left, but how far is anyone's guess? The further left you go, the harder it is to find common ground. What about that statement? And do some of the appointments that we'll get to um, dictate the idea that uh, Olivia Chow, you know, doesn't want to press too many buttons, despite the obvious left lean that she has? Yeah, I think I mean, even when she was running for mayor, she was saying, you know, I'm going to need to build a coalition. And when we asked her directly a couple times, the Toronto Star editorial board, me personally, uh, how are you going to be able to govern if you're not going to use the strong mayor powers? Because this is a city council that has supported John Tory. She said, you know, I want to go to every councillor and say, what do you really want to do? What are you passionate about? How can you contribute to the city? Like, where's the common ground for us about the things you're passionate about? And let me give you a meaningful role on that. And so I think, uh, you know, uh, as Ben was reporting it, you know, this decision is still being finalized. It hasn't been announced yet. Things are subject to change, but it does look like there'll be meaningful roles for some of John Tory's closest allies and some of uh, the more conservative members of council to sort of build a coalition for uh, Olivia Chow. And I, and I mm-hmm. think that is partly, you, you know, a, a way of building bridges to them and, and signaling things to the public, but partly there's a practical matter of just kind of counting votes. If you have somebody on your team, you're more likely to be able to count on you to support to support you on the things that are important to you. So you get a governing coalition that way. Um, so Usma Malik really gets the big promotion here. Uh, she'll be the statutory deputy mayor. That's what appears to be the case. Again, yeah, uh, 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 we'll call it a rookie counselor. I know it's been you know closer to ten months now, nine nine and a half that they've been on the job. But I, I think that's obviously significant. John Tory's choice for that was obviously Jennifer McKelvey, who filled in for him upon his resignation. What are your thoughts on it's a big job for, for Osma Malik, and it'll be a more prominent role? It is. And, and Osma Malik already represents a very big ward, a prominent ward in the city, one where a lot of growth is happening and all of that. But I think, I think partly that is, you know, she had been sort of named to me a few times by a few different people as somebody with a bright future on council who had shown herself to be, uh, you know, sort of dynamic and creative and, and on top of things. And so I, I think in a lot of ways, she's a good choice. And of course, uh, she's the first hijab wearing Muslim woman to sit on city council. And so there's uh, a sort of a, a signal about the face of the council when you have uh, uh, Olivia Chow as the mayor. And then when she's on vacation or whatever the the stand-in for is Asma Malik, I I think you know th- there's something there about the direction the city's heading and the future of the city and all of that. But um, as, as the non-statutory deputy mayors, you also get Mike Cole, who's a a liberal but but had been a sort of like Tory leaning 
liberal in the center of council and Jennifer McKelvey herself, who uh, who will maintain that sort of ceremonial role uh, and get the respect and whatnot that goes with it, uh, as well as another rookie, Amber Morley from Etobicoke. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, you're getting a, a range of deputy mayors there. But Jennifer McKelvey, uh, in addition to keeping her, her committee seat that she already had, will still also be a, a a statutory deputy mayor. Ed Keenan's joining us from the Toronto Star. Um, Frances Nunziata keeps the speaker job. She's done that quite a long time. She was speaker when when Rob Ford was still mayor. But the concept is, and there's a quote from Lily Chang in your colleague Ben, ben Spurs' piece, which almost suggests, uh, to paraphrase, that maybe nobody else wanted the job as much as she wanted to keep it. It's not It's not a lot of fun to try and keep order when people start arguing. Nobody wants to be dad or mom. They want to be in the argument. Yeah, I mean, the weird thing is that when she was first appointed speaker by Rob Ford, everybody was kind of like, what the heck? This, she is not, uh, by temperament, the most sort of like calm, even-keeled person that you expect to be sitting in the chair there. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, she's been doing it a long time. Uh, she knows what she's doing now. I have to say that, that I don't hear a lot of comments from her council colleagues about how good she is at it. But there, there is the sense, as you say, that it's a kind of a, a long, thankless job during these boring meetings, uh, and no one else really wants it. And if, if she seems to like it and seems to, to feel mm-hmm. like, given, you know, she was a mayor of the city of York before amalgamation. She has been in elected yeah. office on city councils since, you know, the 1980s. So, you know, this is kind of a veteran. And if this is the veteran role she wants, again, for Olivia Chow's purposes, it kills two birds with one stone. She doesn't have to find somebody else for it. And it, and it keeps Nunziata happy. I got a minute here. No sign of Josh Matlow. No sign of Brad Bradford. They obviously were prominent opponents of her. They were poke, poke, poking away during the campaign. Anything to that? Or would they just maybe they said no to certain appointments? What do you how do you view it? Yeah, I'm going to wait and see uh, the full list when it's formally announced and see what roles they did wind up with. But yeah, in Ben Spurs' piece and what we've heard so far, there's no roles for them. With Brad Bradford, uh, who's being replaced, we hear, uh, on planning uh, by Gord Perks. I don't know that that's a surprise because he was really an attack dog against her during the campaign. Yeah, Josh Matlow, I'm a bit surprised because although he was sort of putting himself up as the chow alternative, the sense I got towards the end of the campaign was that was the end from the, the executive committee assignment he asked for mm-hmm. is that he's he's hoping to be able to play along with her and play a meaningful role. So we'll see if he gets a role. He's, he's not one of those prominent committee chairs that we've heard of. At least he wasn't seeming to be as of yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but but, you know, Bradford, you almost sort of expect here now to to become one of the leaders of the opposition. Yeah. Uh, Matt Lowe. We'll have to see. I think he wanted to be inside the tent. Uh, they didn't listen to us at also, uh, as as brilliant as you and I are. Don't do a big housing photo op at the exact moment the Greenbelt report comes down and Taylor Swift tickets go on sale. But, you know, like live and learn. Like, you know, they'll listen to us sooner or later, Ed. They, like, we're, we're never wrong. So they'll they'll figure it out. Yeah, no, this is not the kind of thing you want to bury, right? Like, that was the perfect moment to release whatever scandalous information you had. <laughs> thanks for this. Thanks for this, Ed. I appreciate it. Okay. Have a great day, Greg. Ed Keenan joining us from the Toronto Star.